Welcome to Sundays at Grace. I am Pastor Bill Russell, Robinson Grace Church. I am so glad you're here. Uh, We are in a sermon series called A Spiritual EKG. We're looking at the condition of our heart. Did you know that when you trusted Christ as your Savior, that you became a new creation in Christ and God gave you a brand new heart that actually beats with His desires? You want what God wants. How about that? I don't think most Christians are aware of that. We're going to talk about it throughout this series. In fact, I would encourage you to go back to week one and the heart of obedience, if you haven't heard that message, and start there. Anyway, today we're going to be celebrating communion and working our way there as we look at this sermon called The Rest of the Gospel Story. If you want to support our ministry, you can do so at myrgc.com where you can download handouts to go with this message and so many other messages that are on the podcast. With that, let's get to the message. We start with a sermon illustration from the late and iconic Mr. Paul Harvey. So let's get to the message, the rest of the gospel story. classic one by Harvey. He relates a simple story called The Kiss. In it, an attractive young teacher named Mrs. Miss Brown gives the class valedictorian a kiss at graduation. The other boys are all a little jealous, ask why they did not also get a kiss. She says, Charlie, the valedictorian, has earned it. She told them that when the other boys have done something worthwhile, she'll see to it that they also get a kiss. Charlie works hard throughout his career as an adult to prove that he was worthy of that kiss. Eventually, Charlie works his way into the White House when President Harry S. Truman picks Charlie to be his press secretary. You know what Charlie's first job is? His first job is to call Miss Brown to to deliver this message from Truman. And it is the rest of the story. Truman's message is simple. How about that kiss I never got? Have I done something worthwhile yet? And the president got his kiss too. The rest of the story, and he did a great job every day telling us that. Well, I want to talk today about the rest of the gospel story. We're in this series uh, doing an EKG of our heart, looking at the condition of our heart. And I think this is important because I think we have some misconceptions about our heart as Christians. I think we've been fed some some mistruths and some misunderstandings and, and some faulty beliefs, and we're going to see three of them this morning. But here's the reality about our heart. So just, just looking at it here, the rest of the story. So just looking at this, this idea here, this EKG of the heart, we've looked at this so far. Here's our old corrupted heart. When we were dead in our sins in Adam, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or the other translation, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? We had a sick, evil, wicked, deceitful heart. It was incurably sick. But then when we're saved, and this is what so many people fail to understand, when we are saved, when we become new creations in Christ, we get a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is described two different ways. A couple different ways in the Bible, a few different ways in the Bible. But in the Old Testament, here's this. Remember, we looked at this last week. And here, here's what, what, what God told the Jewish people when he gave them the new covenant of grace. And I will give you a new heart. 
And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And as I said last week, I never noticed this until last Sunday studying. This is our heart. Three things about this. We have a new heart. We get a brand new heart. We get a new spirit. He takes our spirit and quickens our spirit and makes it alive. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit. And as I keep talking about, his spirit bears witness with our new spirit. And they're in agreement with our new heart. We really, truly do want the things that God wants. And then we see this in, of course, Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once once slaves of sin have become obedient from what? The heart. We have a heart that is obedient, a heart that desires to do the will of God. And I think that is a tough concept for us to understand. Other places in the New Testament, the Bible says our heart is both pure and true. We have new hearts that actually beat with God's desire. So this morning, I want to talk about the rest of the gospel story. And I want us to think about this great invitation that we get. We understand the gospel, right? That we are saved that we become new creations in Christ, that we have an eternity promised to us in heaven, we get abundant life in Christ. But there is the rest of the gospel story we want to see today. And I love this invitation from Jesus. Come to me, he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And for those who are weighed down, struggling, trying to keep a law, uh, trying, trying to, to be something that they already are in Christ. And, and, and he says, come to me if you labor and if you struggle, and I will give you rest and I wonder how you hear that when you hear that that invitation I wonder when you hear it do do you hear that invitation to rest Uh, is it uh, for instance challenging do you feel like that's a challenge oh boy I got to work really hard (laughs) at learning to rest does it seem impossible does it seem scary like come to come to Jesus and and trust him well that's scary what might well it shouldn't be you really do want what he wants You really do. And we're seeing that in this series and we will continually see it in the series. There are two key words to really understanding this invitation to rest. It's trusting in God leads to resting in Christ. Those are the two things, trust and rest. And we need more of that in our Christian life. I am convinced we need more of that to to understand the life God has planned for us. We need to understand trust and rest. Jesus gives this invitation to those who are exhausted in life, to those who are struggling under the law, and he is telling them that he is the answer. He can help bear their burden. He can help carry their load. In fact, on the cross, Jesus did just that. He bore our burden, and he carried our load. And here is our big idea. Here's our big idea, this new creation heart we have. The more fully I trust in God, the more completely I can rest in Christ. And those two go together. The more fully I learn to trust in God, the more completely I can rest in Christ. And I just want you to understand today that this invitation from Jesus aligns with our new obedient heart. Our new heart, our our new nature that we have in Christ, it agrees. It's an agreement. This is the way God has designed things. This is God's desire for you that you would accept this invitation and it's your desire for you that you would accept this invitation to learn to trust in God and to rest in Christ. So the thing is though, I think we have some faulty beliefs 
and, and, and they, they can seem kind of good, and, and I understand sometimes why we struggle with these things, and I can look back in my own life and think there's times, yeah, I used to preach some of these things, and I've come to understand what does it really mean to trust in God and to completely rest in Christ. And the beauty of this is that the goal that we want comes from trusting in God and resting in Christ. So here are three, three of these faulty beliefs, and um, hopefully the spirit of truth today will make these very alive in your life. Three faulty yet common beliefs. And we'll start here in John 19, 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here's the first faulty belief. It is simply this. Uh, it is finished. Well, not entirely finished. It's finished, but just not entirely finished. What do I mean by that? What do we mean by that? How do we process that? Well, the reality is, Jesus speaks to us from the cross and he says, it is finished. This is one of the last things he says before he dies. It is finished. The battle is over. The victory is won. So what does this mean though? Because we think it's finished, but not entirely finished. There's still some work to be done. No, there's not any work to be done. First, it means that, first of all, the work of the gospel has been completed. The work of the gospel has been completed. What Christ did on the cross was completed. There is a whole theology today and it blows my mind all the time because I do not know of one verse in the scripture that supports this. There's this whole theology that Jesus, after he died on the cross, went into the grave and battled for three days, battled the devil for three days to get the victory. That's nowhere in the Bible. That's not what the script. I don't know where they ever find a verse that says that. I think part of the reason for that is that we tend to emphasize the physical death of Jesus over the spiritual death of Jesus. And just remember on the cross that Jesus died spiritually in the sense that he took on the state of spiritual death. He took on our emptiness. He took on our brokenness. He took on our sinfulness. He took on our hopelessness. He took all of that on in himself, in his body when he hung on that tree. He knows what it feels like to be empty and broken and hurting within as we sing in that song. He knows what that feels like. He hung on the cross and took that upon himself. Now, his physical death is significant because what? Well, we know that, that spiritual death produces what? Physical death. That's what God told Adam and Eve. And they died spiritually, but they died physically and Jesus died physically because he took on sin and it also is significant because when he rose from the dead what it proved he had victory over death that he had defeated death and he had defeated sin so his physical death is certainly significant don't get me wrong there we just tend to lose sight of the fact that on the cross Jesus took on our sin spiritually took on that state of spiritual death and so the victory was won when he says it is finished he means it is finished. Before he went in the grave, he had defeated sin. He had defeated your brokenness and your emptiness and your hopelessness and he had defeated it on the cross and he goes into the grave for three days and uh, you know what he does in the grave? I think he goes into the grave and does a victory tour. Bible says he goes into paradise, takes the one man off the cross next to him, goes into paradise and then it also says he goes into hell and preaches to the fallen angels and basically spells out their fate. This is what just happened to you. This is how things are going to go from here on out. I just won. He didn't go down there. So Jesus did a victory tour in the grave because it was finished on the cross. So 
when, it, when he says it is finished, that's what it means. It also means this. It means that the work of the gospel has been completed in me. The work of the gospel has been completed in me. When we trust in Christ, when we were crucified with Christ our Savior, at that very moment, we became new creations in Christ. We, we, we ended up in a right standing with God at that very moment. Right? And we got a brand new creation heart at that moment. It was complete. God did everything in me that he needed to do the moment I trusted Christ as my Savior. So why do we struggle with this idea that, well, the work is done, but not entirely? Well, I can show you in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Here's what it says. And by that will, and the will here is the will of Jesus, Jesus was willing, obediently willing, to go to the cross and carry out the gospel. And so, and by the will, the obedience of Jesus, we have been sanctified. Notice that. We have been what? Sanctified, past tense sanctified, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One, one death, and we have been sanctified for all time. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered himself, uh, Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, do you follow that? We, we looked at this last spring. Jesus Christ, okay, the, the, when, when the priests in the Old Testament did their sacrifices, they could never sit down. They, every day, 365 days a year, they were in the temple offering sacrifices repeatedly ongoing for the sins of the nation and the people of Israel. And they could never sit down because their work was never done. When they were off duty, they could go, you know, get some sleep and sit down. But when they were on duty, they could never sit down. Christ, by contrast, what does he do? The minute he goes to the cross and offers up his life, what does he do? He goes to heaven and he sits down. Why? Because the work is done. It is finished. Now, there's two things in here, though, that we can see why we struggle with this idea that it is finished, that it is finished, that, it, that I am complete. We can, we can see that in the text here, okay? So, Jesus goes to heaven and sits down because his work is done. His work is complete. His work is finished. He has no more sacrifices to offer, okay? Now, know what it says, though. And by that will, we have been sanctified, past tense, through the living uh, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this is what just confuses us. We just saw in the earlier verse that we have been sanctified. Here in verse 14, it says we are being sanctified. So we struggle with that. The key here, just note the key, for, for by a single offering he has perfected. That means perfected really means completed. So the paradox here is we have been sanctified and yet we are being sanctified at the same time. That's a paradox. That's tough for us to kind of figure out. And so we say it is finished but not entirely. God still has to, you know, there's still something that's not quite right with me, and that's just not the way to understand it. We'll see in a minute how to understand it. The reality is, is we have been perfected or completed for all time. That's what the word perfected means, completed. 
You are complete in Christ. He has done everything he's going to do to you to make you pure and holy and righteous and acceptable. You have your new creation heart. You have his Holy Spirit. You have it all. We have been perfected, completed for all times. We just need to understand that. That yes, it is finished. It is finished in me. Complete in Christ, completely forgiven, completely restored, completely a new creation. So I tried to rack my brain for an illustration to explain this. And here's what I came up with. Just imagine, for instance, a a baby is born, right? And when a baby is born, a baby is, in essence, finished. It's complete. The moment moment it's born, it's complete. It has two eyes and two hands and two kidneys and, you know, it's got two lungs and two ears and two feet and it's got a brain and it's got a heart and it's complete. We don't, we aren't born and then at the age two, we grow a third eye or a fourth lung. We're complete. We are who we are. And that is the reality for us as believers in Christ. The minute we're saved, we get our new creation heart. We get the Holy Spirit. We get a new nature. We're made alive in Christ. We are complete. We are holy enough. Think about this. The minute you're saved, you're holy enough to be a temple of the living God. That God will come and live and indwell you. Now, think about that baby, though. What happens to that baby as he grows? That baby does what? He learns how to use those two feet, how to use his two hands, how to use his mouth. Sometimes you got to smack it because he doesn't know how to use it properly at first, but he learns how to use his faculties and he matures and he grows. The Bible even says that, you know, a little baby can drink milk right away, but he has to learn how to what? Eat meat, eat solid food. We even see that passage in the scripture. We are fully complete, but we need to mature. 1 Corinthians 3, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. So the baby is finished, it's complete, and it's still growing and maturing. And that is you and me in Christ. We are complete. It is finished. God has done everything to you that he needs to do to you. Now you need to learn to walk in faith and to trust in God and to respond in righteousness and to live in purity and to live off of the spirit, not the flesh. Philippians 1, 6 kind of weighs in, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God has started something in us. He's given us everything we need, completed us, and now he's maturing all that. And one day, we're going to go to heaven and get our glorified body. And at that point, we will be fully and totally complete. It's kind of like, and I was trying to, I don't know if this is the best way to say it, but God's work in us is done. I have my new heart. I have my new nature. But God's work on us and through us is ongoing. And again, the central issue here, again, the central issue is understanding that the key to the Bible is either you are dead in Adam in your sins or you are alive in Christ. That's what it's all about. And if you are alive in Christ, you are finished, you are complete, you are holy. You just need to mature and and to develop everything that God has given to to you. Again, I'm not made holy 
and pure and acceptable by my behaviors. I am made holy and acceptable and pure by the work of Christ. In fact, watch this. This might kind of blow your mind here. Okay, in Adam, it is impossible to please God. So if you are in Adam, there's nothing you can do that will please God. You can be the most philanthropist person, the most generous person in the world, do all the greatest works in the world, you'll never please God. Catch this. That if you are in Christ, it is impossible for you to not please God. If you're in Christ, you, you cannot not please God. You're pleasing to God. That might blow your mind. You're like, well, wait, time out. <laughs> I, I know how I live sometimes. How does that work? It works like this. God will always approve of you. God maybe doesn't always approve of everything we do, but he approves of us. God doesn't always approve of the clothes we wear. We talked about it last week, right? New creation clothes. God does not always approve of the clothes we wear. Sometimes we come down, Right? Come down out of the house and we're going to go out somewhere. And our Heavenly Father, loving, protective dad that he is, says, Ah, no, no, we're not going out of the house in that dress or in that outfit. You know, put something else on. We, we, yeah. Or, or, you know, son comes down. Uh, no, pull your pants up and put a bell down. We don't wear our pants that way. We don't wear our pants down around our knees. Or you go into a job interview. Now get off those ripped jeans, put on something respectable, maybe even a tie. We have a loving Father who accepts us and approves of us, doesn't always approve of everything we do, everything we wear. Sometimes he will tell us, hey, you know what? I need you to change those clothes. And you know what happens if we thumb our nose at our loving, protective Father and march out of the house anyway? God still approves of us. Just doesn't approve of our actions. We have to understand the difference in those two things. Remember again how God has designed things. My behavior clothes do not define who I am, but who I am is supposed to influence my behavior clothes. Who I am in Christ is supposed to influence what I wear. And God has flipped that around from the way we oftentimes think. And that's part of the maturing process, right? As you grow, as you mature, you learn what? The right clothes to wear. You ever seen that show like Dr. Phil, the episode of Dr. Phil? And there, there's... There's mom and there's her daughter and daughter's mad at mom. Why? Because mom's dressing like daughter and she's, you know, 55. <laughs> you know, and they're like, mom never learned how to dress. You know, you've seen that show. I'm, I've seen it. It's kind of funny. We grow, we mature. So that's the reality. That's the reality. It is finished. I just need to mature. Here's another great verse on this. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger Amplify says, do not exasperate them to resentment, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know what this verse is telling us? It's so powerful here. The word discipline there is the word disciple. You think the disciples were ever exasperated with Jesus or frustrated with Jesus? I don't think so. I think he was patient with them and he, was, he took his time with them and I think they loved their time with Jesus. I really think they did. But here's what this verse is telling us, and, and, and we just kind of look between the lines here if we want. So what are parents, or what are, what are fathers not supposed to do? Provoke their children to anger. What are they supposed to do? Raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What does that mean? If you raise your child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, it won't be what? Exasperating. It won't be exasperating to them if you raise them in the discipline and instruction. of the, You won't frustrate them. 
Why? And this is for the son or daughter that is saved and in Christ. But if your son or daughter is in Christ and you raise them according to who they are in Christ, it will not be exasperating or frustrating to them. It will agree with who they are. It will agree with their heart. Now, I get it. They can listen to the lies of the world and they can listen to their friends and peer pressure and, and maybe they'll be lied to. But the reality is you won't be the one exasperating them or frustrating them. That's the simple reality. The Father's work in us is not exasperating. It is not frustrating. One, one last thing. Let me show you one last thing before we move on to the second point here. The Bible says that when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are crucified with Christ, we are buried with Christ, we are resurrected with Christ. All of this happens. You know what else happens the moment we're saved? We're, 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 bar- we're crucified, buried, resurrected with Christ. You know what else happens? Did you, did you know the Bible tells us we're ascended with Christ? Did you ever catch that one in the Scripture? Here it is. Um, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you see that? We've been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, resurrected with Christ, and even ascended with Christ. And what's God doing in heaven? What's Jesus doing in heaven? He's sitting there, what, resting And where are we? We're sitting there and we should be resting with him because it is finished, because the work is done and we don't have to struggle to try to be more holy and try to be more righteous and try to be more of what we think we need to be. No, it is finished. And we say it is finished. Well, not entirely, but that is faulty thinking because it is entirely finished even though we are maturing in our relationship with Christ. We also ascend with Christ, so as he rests, so should we. Second faulty belief this morning, and we kind of touched on it a little bit in the first point, but here it is, look at Colossians 2. You were dead, and this is the New Living Translation actually, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. So we have a sinful nature, and it was not yet cut away, but then God made you alive in Christ. He cut away that sinful nature, for he forgave what? All our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And we all believe that, right? At the, at, at the cross, Jesus forgave us of our sins. We believe that. We say it all the time. Here's what we really believe. I am forgiven. Well, not totally. I mean, I'm forgiven, but I'm not, I mean, I'm not like totally forgiven. And that is what is in our mind. But the reality is it just said that all our sins were forgiven at the cross and there's other places that tell us that. So why do we struggle with this idea that all of our sins are forgiven? Well, not totally. There's still some sin in me that, yeah, I still got some things I need to confess every day. I just need to, you know, I lose my cool or my anger and I got to confess that and ask God to forgive me. Well, do I? Is that the truth? Here's the passage that stumps us so much, and I didn't put it on here. 1 John 1, 9 is the, is the verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the common thought is, yeah, every day to stay in fellowship with God. When I lose my cool, when I get angry, when I look at something I shouldn't look at or have a thought I shouldn't, ha- I need to stop and say, Lord, will you forgive me for thinking that? And then I restore my fellowship with God again. That's kind of contrary to though that it's all finished. And that I'm pure and holy and God lives in me and 
all my sins have been forgiven. So how does this work? Well, I'll show you in a minute how you can understand that verse in 1 John 1, 9 in a way that you've maybe never saw it before, but all our sins were forgiven at the cross. That's the reality. All our sins were forgiven at the cross. And, and so it's not, like, it's not like this idea that, well, I'm forgiven at the cross positionally. Like in Christ, I'm forgiven. But practically, every day of my life, well, those sins aren't forgiven. It's like the sins I committed before I was saved are forgiven. But the commands I, in the future, well, they're not forgiven. Right? A lot of people think that. Well, the sins I committed before I was saved, yeah, God, but now the sins in the future, i got to ask God to forgive me for those. Well, let me ask you a question. When did Jesus die on the cross? 2,000 years ago, right? When you died 2,000 years ago, where were all of your sins? They weren't in the past. They were all in the future. They were all in the future. And the reality is when Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died for every sin going back to Adam and Eve in the past and every sin going all the way into the future till he comes back. He died for every sin. And all we have to do is ask for God's forgiveness and he will give it to us and he will give, give it to us once and for all. Oh, there it is. From the vantage point of the cross, all our sins are in the future. Thank you. Thank you there, Tim. I get lost sometimes. So you, you see, you ask one time and God forgives all your sins. All of them. Look like this. There's two friends, Bob and Fred, right? Bob and Fred are friends. And so they're really good friends, but one day Fred takes advantage of Bob in a business dealing. They're in their early 20s. And Bob finds out about it, and it kind of hurts their relationship. So Fred goes to Bob and asks for forgiveness, and Bob forgives Fred. And, and Bob really moves on. The relationship is pretty much restored. It's pretty, but Fred can never get, be, get beyond what he did to Bob. Eventually, Fred moves to another state, and they don't see each other for like 20 years. And 20 years later, they get together at a class reunion. And um, Fred goes up to Bob and says, man, I am still so sorry what I did to you all those years ago. Can you forgive me for that? And you know what Bob's like? Forgive you for what? See, Bob literally forgave him, didn't hold it against him, forgot about it. 25 years ago, forgot about it. And here is Fred all these years carrying around this burden of something that was already forgiven. And that's what the Bible says here. Here's what the scripture says. When God forgives our sin, he also forgets our sin. Oops, my fault there. Here's what it says, Hebrews 10, 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. When God forgives our sins, he forgets our sins. In other words, he left it there. He left it in the grave. When he went to the cross, he left it in the grave. He, in essence, dumped it off in hell, never to remember it again. That doesn't mean he can't cognitively recall it. Certainly he can, but he will never again use it against us. It's that simple. So back to 1 Peter, and here's, here's this passage in 1 Peter, and, it, and we wrestle with this passage when it says, if you're faithful and just to confess your sins, God will forgive you and everybody thinks well we got to run around every day asking every time i do something wrong stop and ask for forgiveness and we just don't have to do it that's just not the the understanding of that understanding first john is knowing that john is speaking to gnostics and this is this is what most commentators are going to tell you this 
This kind of blows my mind. Most commentators understand this, and yet they still act like, well, we've got to go around asking for forgiveness. Let's, let's understand this passage through the eyes of Gnostics and understand that a Gnostic didn't necessarily believe in a physical Jesus. They didn't necessarily believe that he shed his blood for sin. They didn't even necessarily believe in sin itself. They were like sin deniers. One commentator said that when, when uh, John writes or he's writing to believers and deceivers at the same time. There's like these Gnostic deceivers. And they deny that sin is even a real thing and that Christ died for sin, that Christ ever came. They're all into this higher consciousness and deeper knowledge kind of thinking. You know, that's how you get to God. Well, here's what it says in 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light and walking in the light versus walking in the dark, that is like being in Christ alive or being in Adam, being dead in your sins. If we are saved, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another like we are today and the blood of Jesus the Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Can you understand this a little bit through the eyes of those who might be sin deniers, who might say, no, there's no such thing as sin and Christ didn't really die for sin and it's not about a death on the cross. It's about higher knowledge and a deeper consciousness, and, 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 and greater learning. That's what you need. The reality is, the reason I know, you, you can almost look at this and see some evidence that this is not speaking to those of us who are already saved, to those of us who us are already walking in the light. How many of you here would say, I never sin? Anybody here say that? Even the Apostle Paul knows that we sin. Paul says, hey, don't let sin reign in your body. We all know that we sin. We're not going to deny, deny sin. Who denies sins? Well, these Gnostics denied sin. And so what Paul is saying is if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And we're not saved. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But to those who deny sin, to those who aren't saved, you know what? If you'll stop denying your sin and if you will confess your sin, God will forgive your sin. He will. And it's not written to you and me that every day we have to get on our knees and say, God, will you forgive me? I'm sorry I thought that thought. I'm sorry that I, you know, I did that at work. Or I'm sorry I said that word. Or I'm sorry that I... No. It's written to those who didn't believe in sin at all. It is speaking directly to unbelievers. And he's telling them he'll forgive. And you know how much of their sin he will, you know how much of their sin he will take care of? He told them. He said in verse 7, how much of their sin will he take care of? He said it in verse 7. Um, I didn't put it back on. Here's what it says, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin. Not, not the sins you committed in your past. All sins, from the moment you were born to the moment you die, all your sins are taken care of if you come to Christ and confess them once and for all. Hmm. I think we wrestle with this. People struggle with this because it's like, okay, God gave us a credit card and said you can go and sin as much as you want and it's all forgiven. 
People are like, I just, man, that just doesn't work. It's like, no, you gotta, you gotta ask for forgiveness each time because that's just, man, that's just taking advantage of God. And, and God gave us this credit card and said you can do, and, and, uh, and there's some things we discount though. That, is that true? Did God give us a credit card and we can just go out and sin as much as we want and, you know, it's just paid for? Yeah, that's true. That is actually true. And that's why people wrestle with that issue. People wrestle with that. People worry that too much forgiveness and grace will encourage sin. Here's what they're missing out on. Here's what they're not understanding. Here's what they just don't seem to quite get. Look at Hebrews 10, chapter 12. I'll show you here in Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered, we were in Hebrews 10 a little while ago. Here's the, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also, inside of us, bears witness to us for after saying this is the, the covenant that I will make with them after those days declares the Lord I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds and then he adds I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more when he puts the laws on their hearts and minds that's not the Ten Commandments that's not the Mosaic law that's the law of Christ that's the law that says I will love God and I will love my neighbor it's the summary of the entire Bible and God puts that on our hearts so here's this, this thing people say well yeah you know grace and forgiveness encourages sin not necessarily see here's the reality what they miss is that while we can sin as much as we want we don't want to sin that's what God did. That's what's so awesome about what God did. Yeah, his grace and forgiveness. You have this credit card. You can sin as much as you want. But what he did was he gave us a new obedient heart. He took away the desire to sin. And when we sin, we're like, yeah, I don't, I don't really like wearing that old outfit. That's not me. And if I do sin, it's because I'm listening to the flesh. I'm listening to the lies of this world. It is so incredibly amazing what God has done it is a brilliant plan and it's the best way because I'm telling you you can you can ask for forgiveness for every sin you do every day it's not going to make you sin any less what God did to get us to sin last was gave us a new heart that doesn't want to sin that agrees with who he is how amazing is that here's one last uh, here's one last one we're just going to touch on this briefly do this in remembrance of me well not me only. What do I mean by that? We're going to do communion here in a minute. And I have wrestled with this for years. And it's just been the last couple of years. This has really started to make sense. And I preached on this last time in great detail. But when, 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 when the people of Corinth were celebrating communion, and here, this is so incredible what, what takes place here. This is so eye-opening. When they were celebrating communion, they, much like when they did communion at the Last Supper, it was a Passover, it was a celebration. Passover was a celebration. And so here they're doing communion in, in, in Corinthians and it was like a love feast. They had a love feast and everybody brought in their food. Kind of like a potluck, but not really because people came in and ate their own food. So some would come in and they would gorge themselves and they'd stuff themselves and others would come in and they got totally drunk and others would come in and they were poor and they would go home hungry and they hardly had anything to eat. And it's almost like, well, look how much more spiritual my meal is than yours. That kind of attitude was prevalent there and so Paul writes to them to kind of get them 
to think with the right mindset. So he writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had give, given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why do we do communion? To focus on who? To focus on Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. Now the Corinthian church, were they focusing on Christ? No. They were focusing on themselves. And so he writes later on in verse 27, who therefore ever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and that's the body of Christ, that's the community, that's the church. If you're taking communion and you're not focused on the church, the body of Christ, and the body of Christ, you get it? Our focus in communion is on the body of Christ and what Christ did for us and the body of Christ, those we take communion with. And when we examine ourselves, we're to examine ourselves and basically come to one determination. Am I focusing, in, focusing on Christ and his body? Or am I focused on me? And what we have done with this verse is we have flipped it around. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, not only me, because we're supposed to sit down before communion and rack our brains and find all the injustices and all the ways we've wronged God and all the sin in our life and all the rot and all the filth that God has forgiven us of. And we examine ourselves and, oh, where'd I get, where'd I get it wrong this week, Lord? What'd I do wrong this week, Lord? Where'd I miss the mark this week, Lord? You don't need to do that. And so communion, really, seriously, remember his sacrifice. And the reality is, and it's not on your hand out here, but here's the, the, the last point. Basically, in communion, we're supposed to focus on the grace of God and not our sin. Focus on God's grace and not our sin. That's the reality of communion. Do this in remembrance of him, not giving yourself an exam, where is my heart wicked? Where is my heart evil this week? Where did I miss the mark this week? No, you are pure and holy and godly and righteous. And that's so tough. I was last, yesterday painting up there. I was on the top of the thing painting that part. And, and before we could paint it, we had to take a brush and scrape off the moss. And we scraped off the moss. And, uh, and as I'm scraping off the moss, I'm thinking, okay, I'm cleaning this moss off before I paint this thing, right? This is our temple. This is our church. We want it to look nice. So I'm not just going to paint over that ugly moss. I'm going to clean it off. How much more, if you are the temple of the living God, is God not going to come in? Before he moves into you, is he not going to totally clean you out from every wrong and every sin? And take away your ugly, wicked, deceitful and give you a brand new heart. And give you a brand new nature. And give you his soul. If he's going to live in you, he's going to clean you up. I mean, if I'm going to do it for this building, you think God's not going to do it for you and me? So we go to communion. And listen, when we do communion, we have this thing called the spirit of truth in us. So as I focus on Christ, you know what? The spirit of truth, he might turn around and he might point out to me then those things in my life that, yeah, and I can apply God's grace and say, Lord, thank you for your grace. I'm going to say, forgive me. I can just say, Lord, thank you for your grace. That is how amazing your grace is. Your grace has forgiven me for those wrongs and for that sin. I'm going to call the men down. We're going to do communion here. So Wayne and Tim, 
are going to lead us today, and I'll ask them to pass out the elements and couple of questions you can focus on on the screen if you want. There are questions on your handout you can look at too. Take a moment and meditate as we pass out the elements and as we focus on Christ. Lord, thank you for your gift. Thank you that it is finished. Help us understand that. Help us understand there is nothing we have to do to earn your approval. But that you approve of us. You don't always approve of our behaviors and our actions and our clothes but you love us and you'll mature us and you'll teach us how to dress accordingly. If we'll just trust you, then we can rest in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.